blockchain is a new technology. Everyone that's wanted to engage with crypto for purposes of financial speculation has already done so. In order to expand the market, we need to provide new use cases, new products and services. And what do real people care about? Well, they care about each other. They want to self-express to each other. They care about their passions and the things they love. And so that's what's going to get them to adopt a new technology, a new way to interact with their favorite stars, a new way to interact with their favorite sport, a new way to interact with their team members and others. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Following a fascinating diversion to discuss Cambodia's digital currency last week, we are back with the third and last edition of our series on NFTs, which in case you haven't been paying attention, stands for non-fungible tokens. And in that short two-week hiatus, events in the NFT world have gone from intense to downright wild. I'm not sure what moment we'll look back on and say that was the peak of NFT mania. Was it Taco Bell selling taco-themed NFTs? Was it a Brooklyn art collective buying a Banksy piece for $100,000 and then recording themselves burning it before selling the NFT of the original for $380,000? Was it Jack Dorsey fetching upwards of $2 million for the NFT of his first ever tweet? Or maybe that moment is still far into the future. All of them are helping foster the impression that things have gotten a little hypey, perhaps, for this technology. As someone interested in how the narrative of new technologies plays out in the public sphere, what worries me is the appearance of the same phenomenon we've seen in every crypto boom. The outlandish price gains and the inevitable losses consume all the attention, creating a story of excess and tulip mania-like obsession, while the true breakthroughs achieved by the technology and the opportunities it poses are left unrecognized and underemployed. So it's great that we wrap this series up with a true OG in this space, someone who can help separate the chaff from the wheat. Ruham Garigoslu is the CEO and founder of Dapper Labs, the guy who brought CryptoKitties into the world. Remember, we discussed CryptoKitties in the first episode of this series with Nana Decking, including a mention of Sheila Perrin, the CryptoKitty created as an homage to my co-host. Dapper Labs is also behind the enormously successful NBA Top Shot game the product that in many respects set off the current NFT moment by bringing the idea of digital collectibles into the mainstream. So Roham occupies a unique position from which to view all this and where it's going and the various applications for NFT technology. Before we talk to him though, let's welcome Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So look, we started to do this series, I think four weeks ago, as we said, this is the third. We've been talking about doing this for a while now. In Mm -hmm. that time, would you have ever predicted that we would be where we are now? <laughs> yeah, uh, no. Uh, although in retrospect, perhaps I should have. You know what I mean? I mean, we certainly, I think part of our job is to see something like this in the moment. 
there was a faster accelerant here than I think anything we've seen before in the previous cycles that we've seen that, that felt similar. This just feels compressed and extraordinarily quick, even though, as we know, you know, the concept's been around for quite some time. So did I think it would catch fire quite like this in this short period of time? I did not. What I find really quite powerful about it is the idea that we now have it so mainstreamed, the term, those three letters are now something that you can just refer to. It's shorthand for this otherwise complicated thing. Lots of people still don't understand it, of course, but at least you can say, oh, I'm selling an NFT and people have some idea what that is. I often feel like blockchain technology and and the whole crypto space has always been hankering for that kind of thing where we could just Mm. refer to the internet and not have to explain the workings of packet switching and TCP IP and all that sort of stuff. Just have this broad idea of what it is. And, and that's actually one of the things I think is quite valuable about this moment, that we've actually taken this thing mainstream and there's now something of a common language around it, which in some respects abstracts all the difficulty away and, and, and lets us build products that work. And I'm looking forward to talking to Roham about that. Yeah, me too. And you know, I think part of it is that it's hit a new uh, cultural moment, you know? And so now we're able to connect creators, people who have been driving culture forward for quite a long time and activate them around, you know, this technology in a way that really makes sense to them and speaks to them. And so I I think that's where you're getting a lot of this power. And so, you know, there was going to be something. And in retrospect, it seems obvious in hindsight that it was going to be something that really tapped into creators and culture, because that, again, is where a lot of traction takes hold. You know, it's in those communities and, and the, the celebrity almost aspect to it and the kind of the innovation that happens within culture that I think gets something to be embedded as opposed to, you know, fringe. Yeah, look, I think it's appropriate as well for this, for the Money Reimagined podcast, because we started out talking about memes and talking about the, mm-hmm. the role that culture and the conversations that emerge out around these, these sort of artistic forms and cultural forms what role that plays in creating communities, which in turn helps to breed new systems of money and exchange. So yeah, the fact that it's this, this world of creativity that's now the focus of the technology, I think is really important. You and I can riff on this for a while, but who better to, the, to talk about it than, than Roham? So why don't we bring you in, sir? Just, I want to know what life has been like for you in the past few weeks, because I'm sure you've been busy. Did you ever expect this level of interest in, in what you're doing at this stage of the game? Yeah, life's been, life's been a lot of fun. I mean, appropriately sleep deprived is I think how the entire team uh, would describe it. And no, we, we've been having a, we've been really loving it. I mean, obviously the scalability and, and there's a lot of work that needs to get done, but we've loved how basketball has essentially made Top Shot a part of NBA culture. And, you know, players are swapping Top Shots after games. And, you know, you have Adam Lefko and, and Shaq talking about put it on a Top Shot on TV. You know, Josh Hart doing pack breaks on ESPN. It's just really cool to see. And, and that's what we get excited about, obviously. I mean, you, were, you, you talked about some of the dollar figures. And, and yes, it's, a, it's an amazing marketplace. And, and the dollar figures are, are impressive. But it's how easily people can engage with it because it's digital. It's uh, sort of open and available to, to everybody. You know, all the marketplace is transparent and, and all of these things. That's what I get excited about in terms of Top Shot. Uh, but just making a quick comment on your earlier statement around, you know, Beeple and, you know, the Blau uh, music sale that, that raised uh, over $11 million in a weekend and whether they're indicative of a bubble. I think it's a little reductive to sort of say it's all kind of hype and mania because 
first of all, we're talking about you know pretty uh, small numbers of people that are involved, um, and then second, you know they're all very sophisticated, and you know the Beeble sale that's happening now is on Christie's. The um, I know the original buyer of the of the sale of the artwork that we sold, um, and he's a he's been an NFT collector, art collector since since the beginning of crypto art. Most of the people doing large purchases in NBA Top Shot are very sophisticated buyers of trading cards. They hold um, large portfolios of trading cards of memorabilia. They're they're kind of looking at this um, with with a pretty sophisticated framework, I think. So people who buy art are supporting the artist as much as their the liquidity of the NFT is a is a great feature. But I think that there's there's a lot of substance here that's sort of separated from hype and the and the dollars. So, you know, Rohan, for our listeners, um, those who have been following along on the series are familiar with you know, NFTs and how they work. But I- I'd love to hear from your perspective. Like, can you just walk uh, our listeners through, you know, top shots? Like, so how-, how does this work? How are they created? Uh, how, are they- how are they traded in exchange? Like, just a kind of a high level overview of the product itself. For sure. So, so the word NFT is actually not mentioned anywhere on the website. The word blockchain is not me- mentioned anywhere on the website. And so when most people come to NBA Top Shot, they're really coming for one of two things. Either they're going to stand in line for packs. And you know, last pack drop we had, last few pack drops, we've, we've had over 200,000 uh, people in line. And you know, usually that's for, you know, maximum has been 60,000, but you know, it could be as low as 10,000 packs. So they stand in the line. And if they get a pack, then it's kind of like a pack opening experience in a video game. Or I mean, I would say it's even better than opening up a physical uh, set of packs. And, you, know, you open it up, you see what you got inside, and it's all kinds of different players, different serial numbers. They sort of fit in different parts of your collection. And then you can go on the peer-to-peer marketplace, which is sort of the always-on version. You know, pack drops only happen uh, once or twice a week. You can go on the peer-to-peer marketplace, and then you can basically choose what you want. And anything you're buying there is from other people. Um, and so you can list the things you have that you don't want. You can buy things from other people. You can uh, buy players that you, wanna, you think will, will perform better. Or you can just complete collections, and, and we have these things called challenges. So if you have nine of something, you get a tenth one that that's only available to collectors that have the full set. That sort of thing. So it's essentially more of a you know trading card. People who come from uh, mobile games or, or video games that have a collector component to them, which is basically almost every game now. They they really get it immediately. Um, the difference is that anything you pay for you can sell any of the actions you're taking are uh, for real money on the marketplace. For people that come from the trading card world, the thing they love is just the total transparency. You can go look at every single asset from its moment of manufacture, essentially, the, the moment that card was created, every single transfer, every single sale up till now. So that total transparency, people ask, hey, why, why is it so open? And then you say, oh, it's because on the blockchain. You know, why is it so valuable? Oh, because it's on NFT. We sort of never lead with the what, it's always kind of the, the benefit. So you're really tapping into kind of almost the history around you know, trading cards, baseball cards, garbage pail kids, right? Which was a craze for a little while when I was in early elementary, you know, all this kind of thing and, and the thrill of ownership and then the desire to kind of complete your pack, like all of that is really built into this model. And the real difference is that you're kind of taking that and you're embedding it onto a blockchain using the NFT model that we've described on our show. And so what I think is so powerful about this is that similar to how we've talked about art and digital artists and visual art and creation, you're kind of taking something that's familiar to people 
And you're just saying, here is the new generation of this activity. And now you can do this more fluidly. There's more liquidity around it. You have more access you know, to do things like you know, complete your pack, whatever. It is over time, certainly going to become more and more accessible to more and more people. So do you have any responses to that? Is that kind of how you're, what you're thinking about? Are you thinking about how we can open up? Was that your initiation? How do we open up this kind of model to people that may not historically have had um, access to the liquidity around cards, right? Like the ability to stand in line for such a long time. Now they can kind of observe in a, in a gallery of sorts what's available and, and make their bids. That's a super, super great point. And it sort of leads me to two things. I mean, one is everybody reports on the big dollars, but, but yeah, 50% of transactions, more than 50% are under 50 bucks. And so, you know, you can buy and sell stuff for $2 and pay 10 cents in fees, which you could never do. That's less than a postage stamp, right? It's super accessible to anyone that way. And then the pack drops are super accessible to anyone. All you have to do is show up. And, and then the additional thing is these things are digital. So they're actually much more than trading cards. And that's the part I didn't describe they're actually digital highlights. So we take the greatest moments in NBA history, sort of the high definition video. We take the you know, photo from Getty Images. We take the statistics and data from Sports Radar. And then we build a Unity object that's essentially kind of a, a 3D digital cube. And that's what the NFT is. It's not, it's not just the video. It's not just the photo. It's a Unity object that's 3D, will exist in mobile games in the future. It can exist in AR and VR and there's, there's all kinds of things that we can do with it in the future. So it's even better than really a card could ever be. Interesting that you're talking about what it can be in the future, because I often felt like, you know, I first encountered NFTs a few years ago, that it was something that belongs to the future, not necessarily the present. That it's real benefits, that the real power of it would come when there is uh, things like games, you know, movable assets across different gaming platforms and 3D objects like the ones you just described. So I'd be interested to know, first of all, like, whether you think we are at that inflection point now, how far away that is and whether or not we are, you know, we're going to see the world of gaming and everything change from this. But more broadly, because yes, so much focus has been on the high dollar amounts. And by the way, I agree with you that the hype is, is, is a distraction because there's so much going on other than just a Banksy being sold or you know, Grimes or whatever. It, there's all these other transactions and there's all these other possibilities. I'd just like you to lay out what you see as the real value proposition here, how do you define how this technology is going to change how we interact with each other in this creative world? Those are two great questions. I mean, the first one is, you know, we already live in the digital world. There's no need for it to be 3D. Our voices are being transmitted in the digital world. Mm -hmm. If you had video on, you'd see my CryptoKitties sort of virtual background, which is drawn by Hacktow, which is one of my favorite digital artists, and is actually owned by seven different people who can uh, change factors in my art piece without me knowing. So I have to like manually stitch it together now because I care, but, but in the future it'd be automated and, and the tech for that already exists today. Um, in terms of sort of the, the NFT world, I mean, in large part, the culture is that, you know, when you own a top shot, it lives in your top shot account. It, you can look it up on FlowScan, which is the Flow blockchain equivalent of a Etherscan. And it exists sort of the, especially to the younger generation it already exists digitally. To the older generation, that's how their trading cards exist. That's how their sneakers exist, right? There's people already custodying their memorabilia in you know, vacuumed rooms and then trading them via a platforms that, that sort of handle all of the, the physical custody, et cetera, or they're fractionalizing them and trading shares of it. So like even to the older generation, sort of 
35, 40, whatever, the thinking of it digitally makes a lot of sense. And so that, that's kind of more from a sort of collector gamer standpoint, right? Like already $100 billion a year are spent um, in virtual world on digital assets. It just happens to be that those things aren't owned by anyone other than the game companies or the social platforms that, that sell them. And which takes me to sort of answer your second point of, of what's the point of all this and what's the sort of real value proposition. And, and it kind of goes back to, you know, what's the point of blockchain? And, you know, everybody talks about cryptocurrency and censorship resistance. And, and yeah, absolutely. It's the first censorship resistant kind of computer that, that lives in the open, right? It's a public computer that anybody can use, everybody can access, nobody can, can change. And so one kind of application you can build on that is a digital currency, you know, Bitcoin, whatever. But another kind of application, or you can build infinite kinds of digital assets on it, right? And you know, NFTs are either artwork or they've been music. In our case, they're sort of virtual items that'll live in virtual worlds and games, um, you know, trading cards, etc. But people are already doing promissory notes as NFTs. People are already doing insurance contracts as, mm. as NFTs. And, and the NFT is just sort of that kind of atomic unit. But the reality is for the first time, we have software that can belong to the people that are using it. Um, rather than the platforms that sort of facilitate the trade, if you will. And so MBA can uh, sell something to a fan, fan can take it wherever they want. Whatever happens to Dapper Labs or the MBA or whatever, that digital asset continues to, to exist. So like that kind of mindset shift is, I think, really huge for business as well, because for the first time in history of software, you can build software and not maintain it, right? You can build a digital asset and then the, the cost is over. There's no microservices, there's no team, there's no salaries to pay, there's no sunsetting. The product will exist into perpetuity. And same thing for a customer. For the first time, you can use a product that'll exist into perpetuity. So that's kind of the fundamental shift here. And the NFT, just like the crypto token, sort of the FT, right? The fungible token, it's just one different kind of sort of fuel for the machine. Or maybe fungible token is the fuel. NFT is literally everything else from data to derivatives to whatever. So thanks, Rohan. And there's a lot to absorb and unpack there. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and, and talk more technically. So you built Top Shots on top of the Flow blockchain. And so uh, curious to understand that decision. And so why Flow? You know, why not kind of Ethereum, which has been also commonly used uh, in the NFT space? And uh, your, your thoughts there? Yeah, so we wrote the original NFT standard for Ethereum, you know, ERC-721 back in summer of 2017. We shipped CryptoKitties in November of 2017. We formed Dapper Labs in February of 2018. And between then and May 2019, we were basically a full-time Ethereum shop. Like we were trying to make it work. And over that time, we had a small team that was, you know, we met with the heads of all the various sort of uh, projects now from, you know, Silvio to Polkadot to, to others. And you know, read two dozen white papers, three dozen white papers, and, and gone, went really deep and realized that you know, the, the path that I think most of your readers will obviously be aware of crypto crews, right? We're 30% of the Ethereum blockchain at one point in terms of gas fees. And today it costs over 100 bucks to breed your crypto kitties. It's just not practical. And so, and the path that everyone was taking to scaling was charting. That word is, doesn't make sense to a mainstream audience, but just the concept of breaking the network up into thousands of little pieces and saying, hey, developer, figure out your user experience, or you know, dozens of different layer twos, some with their own currencies, others with bridges and all these things. That level of complexity for us, we decided that we couldn't make our business work. 
we built the, you know, what is, I think, one, still one of the leading wallets on Ethereum, the Dapper wallet, both on Android and desktop. We built Cheese Wizards, which is one of the most complex Solidity applications, I think, ever. We were 42 bytes under the uh, Ethereum virtual machine limit. And just like decided that, look, this is great for traders. You can build tons of financial software here. I don't think DeFi is moving anywhere other than Ethereum. I love Ethereum and, and it's here to stay. And what the product's been able to do is life-changing for, for millions of people. But if we want a consumer ecosystem, a world where developers can build products that accept credit cards, developers can easily have wallets that can be custodial, switch to semi-custodial, become non-custodial, let users reset their passwords, and then not, never have to deal with complexities around layer two or uh, sharding or cross-shard communication or all of these theoretical concepts that you know, people were leaving to other people to figure out. If we can do that, we should do that. And that's kind of where Flow Blockchain came from. So you know, it kind of took us a year to convince ourselves that, I guess over a year, to convince ourselves that our ideas were sort of differentiated enough to to take the jump and you know build a new network. But in that sort of time frame, you know, May 2019, we we made the bet. And so we started development at that time. And there's a lot of things about Flow that are different. We built our own programming language. You know, it was a big risk um, to start, but ended up having a lot of the same ideas as the Libra team. And you know, Cadence and Move um, are are kind of making smart contract development easier and more secure um, in in the exact same way. And so, like, we made a lot of bets that ended up being, um, I think, proven correct. But I think you know, the next ten years will sort of show folks there there still isn't really a production network with multiple applications that are working together across you know shards or layer two. It's still a theoretical problem that's unsolved. You know, three four years later. I suppose one question that comes to mind here, uh, Roham, though, is how do you guarantee that Flow itself won't run into the same scalability challenges? What have you built? And without going too technical, our audience is probably a mix of technical and non-technical folks. What can you say in terms of assurances that ultimately Flow itself is going to have the capacity to have what could be literally you know, billions of transactions if this is really where the world is going? passing through it in a way that doesn't encounter the same you know, gas fee challenges that we now see in Ethereum? Yeah, look, I mean, for one thing, I can't guarantee anything. We've kind of had a um, uh, sort of community-driven approach with both the white papers as well as the code. It's been open source since last year. The white papers we released sort of as we went through, all of them are sort of academically peer-reviewed. And, and we tried to be relatively, you know, without kind of going overboard, rigorous about everything that was new in our system. And we tried to use sort of best in class for everything that was not new in our system. So, you know, worked with Dan Bonet as our advisor on, on doing BLS signatures. You know, he's, mm. the, he's the B in BLS, right? We work, you know, we use hot stuff, which is what Dahlia helped create at, at VMware. And she's at um, Facebook now. And then we're, you know, part of the team collaborating on the sort of Libra Move project. And so, you know, we've tried to first sort of um, make sure we have the right people around the table, have um, you know, all of the information be public and, and out there for anybody to, to review, have the, the codes been in production since May 2020. Um, and so it was, it was sort of, you know, it's, it's been operating public. Is it ready for billions of transactions and users and, and all of these things? Today, you know, probably not, but there's a team of um, open source developers that are both within Dapper Labs third-party companies that are building on Flow, third-party developers that are contributing code. And the unlock of the Flow architecture is very dramatic. And the way it sort of works is everybody is probably familiar with sort of that scalability trilemma 
where you can only have, you know, two of scalability, decentralization, and security. The way Flow works is we have node types that specialize in scalability, decentralization, and, and security. And in particular, the, the sort of the execution nodes, which are literally, you know, Google Cloud's uh, biggest machines, you know, and being run by Samsung and T-Systems and some others. These are sort of the power of the network can scale um, linearly with hardware capacity um, and, and is, you know, run by the same data centers that, that can, you know, run the rest of the big things on, on the internet. And, but the difference is, is on Flow, those data centers have no decision-making power. The way Flow works is when a block is given to uh, that group of computers to, to compute, um, it's already preformed by the consensus nodes, which are at this point hundreds and eventually it will be thousands. Um, and so the most powerful computers in the network have zero decision-making power. Any activity that they do that's uh, incorrect will be detected, attributed, punished, and reversed. That's sort of the, what the three technical papers prove is game theoretically, and it's, the system is very, very secure. And so these, especially not for me, but um, I think it's a fundamentally new approach that, that has been super exciting. It's really interesting. Yes, familiarity with the triad and kind of the trade-offs that are often made when it comes to technical design. You know, specifically, you mentioned centers of resistance and, of course, decentralization. And I'm curious, how critical is decentralization to the Top Shot's use case? Like, is that actually something that was a high-order priority? You know, apart from the fact that let's think about what you had kind of Bitcoin. You know, anchored on constant double spend. Certainly, here you do need to have the non-fungibility preserved. But I'm, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. How important is decentralization and particularly as it factors in, you know, to triad and trade-offs? Um, well, I think it's two separate questions with TopShot and, and Flow Blockchain. So I think a blockchain application can be as centralized as it needs to be and as decentralized as it should be. And the balance that we've struck with TopShot is that you own the asset. Every account is a blockchain wallet. But yes, we're going to have to do compliance checks. We're going to have to do money laundering checks. It's going to be a US dollar marketplace because we want to support people that come with credit cards, you know, so on, so on and so forth. But you know, one day you'll, you'll, you can withdraw your NFTs, take it to OpenSea and, and sell it for crypto. Like that's not going to be a problem. To answer that question from a perspective of the protocol, we think there's no point in the blockchain if it's not decentralized and not going to be fully decentralized as in uh, completely public censorship resistant. Uh, et cetera. I think there's a path that, that, you know, these are new technologies. And so it, it's fine to follow. And, you know, right now, most of the nodes in the Flow ecosystem are teams. You know, we have Spencer Dinwiddie um, and his team at Galaxy running a node. We have individual community members running nodes. But eventually, it needs to be completely decentralized because that's anti-platform risk and censorship resistance. And the concept of these being infinite networks that can live outlast their creators is absolutely critical. So today, if Dapper Labs goes away, the remaining nodes can keep the network running. The code is open source and can be contributed to by anybody, so on and so forth. And I think that at the protocol layer, it's absolutely critical because A, that's what developers want to see. That's what users want to see. Users cut new platforms a little bit of slack early on, but you know, especially in this space, it's a big value to be able to say, this is not a Dapper Labs blockchain. Other Fortune 500 companies can have the confidence to build on it. Independent artists can have the confidence to launch on it. So I would answer the question differently based on application versus protocol. Ultimately, I think at the end of the day, you can't really stand up the idea that you own this asset unless it resides on a platform that you know, the institution that minted it or that, that actually sort of 
facilitated your access to it, which is in this case Dapper Labs, doesn't control it. I see it as also just this almost like fundamental component of, of standing up the very idea of, of a digitally unique asset that you can control. But it brings me to another question, which is, yes, now I own this asset and it doesn't matter whether Dapper Labs goes down, I've got it and I can keep using it on Flow. And Flow is, as, as you're describing, something that you know, is managed and maintained by a variety of different nodes. However, the way you conceive of this, does it foresee Flow itself becoming its own totally enclosed ecosystem? Or do you imagine a world in which there is interoperability across chains? Of course, we've got projects out there that are exploring this, the Cosmos guys, the Polkadot guys, and so forth, where ultimately I can own my, my collectible card and I can now actually, you know, through some wrapped structure, sell it to somebody who then holds it in an Ethereum context. No, absolutely. To to sort of Sheila's earlier point, I think interoperability is critical. And there are already teams that their experiences are interoperable across blockchains. So people are already working on it. There are other teams, for example, Niftyfy is a Ethereum-based project. They're building out on Flow. I believe they want to figure out how bridging will work in their context, which is collateralization of NFTs. And OpenSea as well is a very large and successful Ethereum project that is also wanting to support Flow. Um, I don't think they're going to start with a bridge, but but eventually, you know, we're, we're building a bridge for CryptoKitties where people will be able to bring CryptoKitties back and forth and others will probably be able to generalize that code to all NFTs. And, and so that's the value of open ecosystems. Nobody has to ask us to be able to um, build a bridge to Ethereum or, or vice versa. And I think that that's going to be powerful. You know, our philosophy as a business has always been start with the customer experience and work your way back. And the problem with a bridge is that it costs gas on either side. But especially on the Ethereum side, if you're going to lock up something and pay $1,500 for it, practically speaking, there's not that many use cases mm-hmm. at scale that actually need it. And so that's why we haven't built it. Um, it's just simply an expensive operation on the Ethereum side. Yeah. And, I, and that may be the thing that actually, regardless of how good the tech is for these bridges, you know, ends up still kind of creating this single standard solution. I mean, I'm again, speculating, neither of us have crystal balls here. But it seems to me that it may be the interoperability is possible, but not necessarily attractive to users, right? Because why would I, more convenient to stick around in one environment and not move things across? Look, there's interoperability from an engineer's perspective in terms of a bridge that perfectly trustlessly brings assets back and forth. And then there's interoperability from a user's perspective in which a piece of software that I trust takes actions for me. And so a wallet can be a very easy bridge. A DAP, can be a very easy bridge. It's much cheaper for us as CryptoKitties to say, yes, we're going to verify that you own these CryptoKitties on Ethereum and give you these kitty hats on Flow. That's how we recently launched a Flow demo that shows a happening. So on both sides, you have an NFT. On both sides, you now have a non-custodial wallet that you're in control of, right? On Flow, there are multiple non-custodial wallets. You, know, you, you can go buy Flow if you're outside of the US. And so the interoperability experience can be for the user. Okay, they trust CryptoKitties and now they got their NFTs, they can do whatever they want. Or if they trust a you know, Coinbase or something and Coinbase wallet one day supports multiple blockchains, uh, maybe that wallet provider can sort of be the escrow, although even the formal escrow will again cost gas. And so they would have to be a custodial wallet on either end. So you know, for example, Dapper could provide that relatively easily if it turned its Ethereum wallet more custodial. So different ways can achieve the same action. But yes, a sort of very direct implementation of a bridge will only really work for high dollar volume assets. What I think is, again, just imagining where this might go is just for the, 
the network effect, the value of being in one place and the cost of moving to another one, you end up with this sort of a winner, if you like, you know, and, and I'm just wondering whether, you know, you look at the world in this way as if to say, from, from the perspective of NFTs being quite a very different experience than say DeFi, and then also from Bitcoin as a, a stable store of value asset that people hold as a reserve asset. They're now sort of seems to me as if we're emerging in the crypto world into these different uh, use cases that may actually kind of gravitate towards specific blockchains that end up being the ones that win. Is that where you see it going? I mean, notwithstanding the value of these interoperable bridges, that communities start to form around these very distinct use cases in particular blockchains and flow, I imagine, is the one you would want to win in that case for NFTs. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's all about community. And I think it's about different blockchains will be good for different communities. So for example, you know, Flow is not even trying to win DeFi. And I think the network effects that Ethereum has around that, not just in the sense of the money, but in the sense of the software, the tooling, the developers, right? Developers that are interested in finance and understand decentralized finance are, have a high allegiance to Ethereum. That's kind of what will keep the network effect. But at the same time, that means it's actually a bad home for things like mass market uh, consumer products, right? Things that should be cheap to use, free to use, ideally. That's just not in the mindset. I don't even want to talk about Ethereum too, because it's at this point, you know, let's talk about software that exists. So there are uh, layer twos that are in existence and, and you know, maybe they can provide a better home. But that's kind of what Flow is trying to do is say, you know, there's NBA Top Shot here. It's, you know, half a million real users with uh, wallets now. You know, about half of those, about a quarter million users have assets. They have NFTs. They have credit cards or cryptocurrency in their wallets. And so that's the kind of user that Flow developers want to build for. Whether they are middleware, you know, like API providers or whether they are consumer, you know, marketplaces or Shopify for NFTs or, or whatever it is, um, they want to build things that consumers will want to use. And those are the kinds of ecosystems that will emerge on Flow. I am 100% sure there will be other use cases, right? Like insurance or maybe other things will emerge on other blockchains. But, you know, our thesis at Dapper Labs since the very beginning was blockchain is a new technology. Everyone that's wanted to engage with crypto for purposes of financial speculation has already done so. In order to expand the market, we need to provide new use cases, new products and services. And what do real people care about? Well, they care about each other. They want to self-express to each other. They care about their passions and the things they love. And so that's what's going to get them to adopt a new technology, a new way to interact with their favorite stars, a new way to interact with their favorite sport, a new way to interact with their team members and others. So that's what we've tried to do at Flow. I think it's a winning or losing. I think you know, crypto is really at, at the earliest stage. We've had you know, the most basic applications built on this new platform, and uh, we barely scratch the surface on what's possible. So, you know, one of the, the core tenants, uh, I think, of the entire crypto ecosystem is, you know, democratizing access, right? Whether that is to the financial system, whether it's to uh, wealth creation opportunities, you know, any number of axes, whether to, you know, capital market creation, whatever it might be. And we're already seeing, you know, that there has been a tremendous uptake by, you know, celebrities and wealthy individuals of NFTs, you know, uh, and to be fair, also of, of cryptocurrencies, a general matter. Um, but we're also seeing, I think, to some of the discussion we've been having, that you know there is a gravitation to certain um, services or products, you know, uh, by certain groups, right? So visual artists tend to migrate one place, and then you've got you know athletes, NBA, certainly coming to Top Shots. 
um, using, you know, flow. So there's this difference that's happening. And so do you think that, you know, there's been commentary on this already, right? The observation that this has become a very celebrity driven phenomenon, which again, you know, really helps to draw awareness, but also has consequences. So curious how you're thinking about that and what plans there are, whether this is just, you know, communication or marketing or whatever it might be to ensure that, you know, the people you're talking about who maybe make the $2 trade or whatever, right, who are kind of making up the core of your market to ensure they remain really deeply engaged and in fact, expand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, part of it is why I try to talk on podcasts and, you know, Clubhouse, et cetera, is to try and say that message because, you know, often the sort of mainstream press just likes the, likes the headlines. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think the the celebrity and sort of some noise and uh, some signal, that's kind of endemic to every platform shift and, and different people trying different experiments, seeing what works. You know, the advice I give the people that follow me on Twitter is when you buy an NFT, just think about, hey, is this a gimmick or is it changed the game that it's involved in, right? Whether it's music or sports or, or whatnot, does it unlock a new approach to things such that 10 years from now, someone will care? Or do you want to support that creator? And, and that's the other piece I want to mention, you know, a lot of this is all about just supporting creators. And for the first time, digital artists have a way to live, a way that they can live by their own work rather than, you know, working for big gaming companies or, or, or things like that. You know, people had millions of followers on Instagram before he ever showed up to Ethereum. So it's a way for people with community to finally get paid for the work they've been doing for, you know, in Beeble's case, years and years, just creating every day, every single day and giving them away for free. To Instagram mostly by creating content for people to then spend time scrolling on Instagram. So that's, I think, the more interesting story to me and, and really what I see playing out at the ground floor. It's the rookies that get it immediately, that want to jump in, that realize, wait a second, this means I can connect with my fans in a new way. This means I can make a bet on myself in a new way. So I'm pretty optimistic. I feel like you know, there's been a lot of buzz, but still a lot of people are getting it. Yeah. And, you know, I think there is this kind of idea out there that I don't think will persist that you can just kind of like mint anything, you know, you mint anything and then suddenly you're going to get this following and whatnot. And, and, you know, actually it's quite the opposite. It's people that to your point have been doing this for a while, have built up a following that now have a new mechanism for actually creating value for themselves, which I think is incredibly powerful. And it's what I find so exciting about the space. Now, I do think we're going to have new models, you know, over time, right? Like when Spotify came out, for example, it was kind of streaming music by artists that already had established records and people were kind of going there and you know, they were known. And then it became a place to kind of find new artists, right? And that became very powerful. And so I do think we're going to move into a world very quickly and we're already really well on our way uh, where the discovery aspect is going to be really uh, transformational for a lot of creators. But I think at the present moment, you know, certainly technically, yes, anyone can go and admit whatever they want. But most of that, I think we can all acknowledge is not, eh, you know, it's valuable to someone. Let's put it that way. Let's put it as politely as we possibly can. It certainly has value to someone, um, but the audience for it may prove over time to maybe not be as dramatic as, you know, those who really have maybe a little more, uh, maybe have some more skin in the game over a longer time frame. I sort of pick up on something that's just sort of rattling around people's heads and you're seeing some commentary around it now on, on Twitter. And that is like distinguishing between I suppose what an NFT represents as this, you know, digitally designed unique uh, token, and this question of copyright, right? The question of you know, what proof is there that this thing that you are minting, that you are essentially signing over to say is yours, is yours? And that, to me, is a question that is kind of somewhat irrelevant because it's um, it's it's actually the same problem we face with all copyright questions. 
but I think in the digital era when you know this stuff moves so quickly um, and there is quite a lot of money to be made out of uh, out of these things there are concerns that you know those checks and balances don't exist and yet I think at the same time there's obviously a lot of value that comes from the provenance and all the information attached to this that might make those copyright claims easier or not to sort of disprove or prove. Um, so I'm wondering where you stand on all this and what you tell people when you describe what rights they are actually you know, assigning to or receiving when they issue or buy an NFT. So in the case of Top Shot, it's probably a little bit different than you know, a, a user-generated content um, because look, it's the same concept as a trading card. It's the same concept as I saw a user-generated video actually from a Top Shot user that compared it to you know, when you buy a Lakers hat. You own the Lakers hat. You don't own the logo that's printed on the Lakers hat. You don't own the rights to make more Lakers hats. You own the hat that you bought. Same thing with a Mickey Mantle card. You don't get to tell Mickey Mantle what to do. You don't get to reprint that card um, and resell it commercially. Um, you don't get uh, any revenue if someone uses that, that picture in, a, in an advertising campaign. Most people that end up being our target audience understand it very clearly. Uh, some people don't, but I think that's... You know, it's less and less now over time. So, but I mean, at the same time, I think, you know, it strikes us that there's a use for this for, say, photographers, for, for you know, uh, professional creators who in their day-to-day life are, are selling, um, you know, rights essentially to their photos. And so I suppose what, what are they assigning over in that case, from their perspective, to, say, a publisher uh, when they are selling an NFT? Well, it, it depends what they program it to say, right? Like an NFT is a digital asset and it's essentially a bundle of rights and you can program it to be, to be anything. You know, a top shot is the top shot, um, you know, but, but certain people have sold NFTs where, you know, they're, uh, you know, they may give a right to come watch a game with the, with the athlete. Um, and, and so it's a one-time use sort of ticket. Uh, you could use an NFT for that. You know, you could use it for, hey, whoever owns this NFT can have a monthly, you know, video call with me, or I'll send you a cameo message on your birthday. Um, and so it's more of a sort of status or, or, or access uh, that way. I would really, you know, the, the sky's the limit in terms of NFTs. And, and even in the sense of Mark Cuban could build an application without even talking to us that reads people's phones and says, oh, wow, this guy has uh, 50 top shots. Um, this other person has, you know, 200 top shots and, and they're, they're huge Mavs fans. And so let's give them a free hot dog at the next time they come to next, next time they come to the game or something like that. Um, and so, you know, that all of that information is out there and sort of, it can be built on with time. Roham, we're going to wrap here because that's actually, I think a really interesting place to leave it. You know, you mentioned programmability and it's a, I think this is the thing that is really powerful here, right? This is why it is, it is, yes think you can conceive of it as a, a collectible card, a trading card, but it's a trading card that has all these incredible bells and whistles attached to it. That, that is the, the very fact that we are now imbuing these previously analog physical things with now the power of software uh, that I think is really where the, the huge opportunities lie here. That, that it's, it's once we've established that digital scarcity concept and now the imagination as to where this goes is is to what things people are going to program into that what are the actual rights and opportunities and how can we then for create an entirely different economy if you like around around these things so it's been exciting to have you on board with us and and, and lay out the vision 
um as always it's like as many questions as answers we just sort of think this, this could go anywhere um but thank you very much for sort of taking time out of what is no doubt an extremely busy schedule for you at the moment uh and, and giving us details about what's happening with, with with dapper labs and um you know wish you all the best with it all thank you very much thank you for having me thanks Rohan. this is really great appreciate it and thanks for joining us everybody come back again next week for another episode of money reimagined Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, and Roham Gary Goslu. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Musso, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcastcoindesk.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.